really struck me is the, the loneliness of perfectionism. Brene Brown talks about this, you know, perfectionism is a it's 20 ton shield that we carry around to keep us safe. And all it does is separate us from, from other people. It's this kind of perverse strategy that we use to get love and affection and, and be wanted by people. And yet, because we've built this big wall between us and other people, we never get to feel it. <laughs> you know, we're inherently social creatures. We did not evolve over hundreds of thousands of years to live in single family households. You know, the reason that so many of us are, are really struggling is because we are trying to individually do the work that would have been an entire family or an entire village. We all need other people around us and perfectionism keeps us separate in so, in so many ways. And, and yeah, and so, so cycles is the, is the other part of it. So for me, all of this, all of these tools are pointing to a return to wholeness, a remembering of wholeness. That's the antidote to perfectionism. Welcome to the Wild on Purpose podcast, a place for those deeply committed to knowing themselves and embodying their authentic purpose in the world. I'm your host, Kelly Wildmiller. In this show, we gather to discuss what it truly means to lead by our essential nature and uncage our greatest gifts so we may share them with others. We'll be exploring an expansive range of topics from health and healing, spirituality and consciousness to relationships, work, and more. As we turn over many stones, we'll uncover a golden thread inviting us to rewild our bodies and minds while awakening our souls and stepping more fully into our purpose. Thank you for being here and please enjoy this wild conversation. Hello, wild ones. Today's guest is an authenticity and productivity coach for recovering perfectionists. She is also one of my embodiment mentors and helped me move through outdated perfectionism tendencies so that I could create this podcast in a gradual, sustainable, and cyclical manner. Without her wisdom and incredible space holding, I'm not sure with this podcast, my creativity and business would be today. Vix Anderton was born into the rigid domestication of London and spent the early days of her career in the Royal Air Force, where vulnerability, as you can imagine, was not so accepted. By redefining success for herself, she rebelled against the status quo and discovered a potent recipe for embodying her authentic genius in the world that includes embodiment, authentic relating, the nervous system, and cyclical living. She is author of the book, Enough, An Imperfect Antidote to Perfectionism, which broke the paradigm of fluffy personal development books by offering nothing but relatable and practical perspectives on perfectionism and can be finished in just under two hours. And her definition of perfectionism may also surprise you. In this conversation, we explore our similar backgrounds of scholastic high achievement, chasing A's for love, and painfully identifying our self-worth with the results that we get. She explains the five flavors of perfectionism, all of which I have had at one time or another, I have to say, and why it is a survival strategy that inhibits us from living authentically, creatively, and freely, and that the antidote to perfectionism is wholeness. Honestly, 
I don't know a single modern human who wouldn't benefit from listening to this episode. When it comes to rewilding, Vix is a real-life role model for going beyond our conditioning and creating more choice in our lives. As always, if this conversation resonates with you, subscribe, leave a comment on Substack, and share it with your people. You can also join a growing group of wonderful wild humans who are choosing to be wild on purpose at wildonpurpose.co. This will take you to my Substack page where both my newsletter and my podcast are hosted. Oh, and final thing, you may notice jingling bells in the background during this chat. Those are Vix's adorable rescue kittens in Bali. Now, please enjoy this wild conversation with Vix Anderton. Hello, Vix. Welcome to the Wild on Purpose podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah, yeah, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Beautiful. Okay, so let's kick us off by orienting to where you are in the world. Can you share that with us? And then also describe what the natural landscape looks like outside your doors. Yeah, so I am in uh, Ubud, in Bali, in Indonesia. It is first thing in the morning. I actually have barely looked outside the window. Uh, the sun is coming up. I have this beautiful, lush kind of tropical jungle garden um, going on just outside. Yeah, it's got that, um, uh, especially here in the tropics where it gets so hot during the day, it's got that beautiful, like, cool, still, like the world is just waking up kind of feeling. Mm. As someone who has spent quite a bit of time in Bali as well, the mornings were always my favorite. Before the humidity comes in, before even a lot of the noise is being made and it's just the stillness of you and the trees and and the bugs and the birds and like there's just a different type of aliveness before all the humans come awake yeah although interesting like I got woken up by the um the music from the the local temple um this morning at at 6 a.m but it's the kind of you know it's it's this beautiful kind of like rhythmic thing it's a really I really it's a really lovely alarm clock much better than the cockerel Hmm. Yeah. Johnny was recently saying how much he misses that sound actually. And that, you know, mm-hmm. we just get like cars. That's, that's our noise of what's around mm-hmm. us and missing those cultural sounds, knowing that there's a group mm-hmm. of people near you who are really engaged in their cultural practices. And there was so much beauty to that. Yeah. It's one of the things I've really enjoyed about the times that I've lived in the, in the Middle East, actually the, mm-hmm. the hearing the call to prayer first thing in the in the morning you know even if that's not the way that like I choose to honor uh my beliefs or um my spirituality like again recognizing that that's how other people are getting up and starting the day um yeah I always really really love that sound Mm. we'll dive into your background here in a little bit but the next question that all of my guests get to receive is in what ways were you particularly wild as a young child, knowing that this podcast is about the path of rewilding and coming back home to ourselves? Yeah, like this, is, this is such an interesting question. And um, uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be open that like, this it has a lot of sensitivity for me at the moment. It's something that I'm quite actively working on um, in, in, my, in my, own, uh, my own work right now. Um, and I had a session on uh, just last week and I was kind of connecting back to this, this young wild part of me, like the part 
that was alive before or the version of me that was was there before before I before the box you know if I got squeezed into the box and and decided that perfectionism and overachieving were the way that I was going to navigate the world and I I connected with this like beautiful I mean what I guess was then called a tomboy um but, you know, I was like, I was into Thomas the Tank Engine. And like I had this like feeling of like, I wanted to be a superhero and I wanted to be messy. And it's really interesting. It's like, a, it's a part of me that I, I actually don't really remember. I don't really recognize and feeling. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I was big. I was like big energy as a, as a, as a child, big imagination. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, sadly, yeah, it feels sad. Um, uh, life and, um, and things meant that that, yeah, that got kind of compressed, um, quite, quite quickly as a way for me to cope with, with um, what was happening in my world. Hmm. Thank you for sharing. And I could really relate to the bigness of the bigness of childhood and that self-expression and just doing what feels good. And then I I, I know that we do have fairly similar upbringings in a sense of like school became our outlets and Mm -hmm. our parental expectations really helped to shape how we began showing up. And you just said perfection and perfectionism and overachieving became kind of these boxes you had to fit yourself in in order to do life. And no surprise that, you know, now you are an authenticity and productivity coach for recovering perfectionists. And, you know, I'm just raising my hand here on the video because this is why I've worked with you (laughs) and why I want to have this conversation. I feel so called to your work is um, this word perfectionism is something that I never really wanted to identify with. It sounds so negative and even though after reading your book, I identified that I have so many perfectionist tendencies and that there's a couple, there's a quite a bit of different flavors of perfectionism. And so to kick us off, could you just define what perfectionism means to you? And as you've really studied it and kind of untangled it in your own life, maybe how has the definition changed over time as well? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think I think perfectionism is a terrible name for um, the, the the survival strategy that that many of us end up with, um, because it's it's so it's in my experience and the people that I work with, it's very rarely about um, aiming to be perfect. Right? It is for some people, you know, some people definitely have this kind of tendency to want to dot the I's and cross the T's or stay up till two. You know, the kind of the, the classic tropes around perfectionism. But the way that I have really come to understand it is um, that it's, it's, it really stems from this deep-seated um, sense of, of not-enoughness. I discovered a new word for this recently from the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, which is paro, like the, the feeling that no matter what I do, it's somehow, it's somehow always wrong. Yeah, and that, that you know, that, Clearly, the the way that other people navigate the world that would be better. The way that I do things is is always always slightly falling short. So there can be this addiction to self improvement, self development. Yeah, um, uh, 
um, one of my clients described it recently as overlearning, which I thought was brilliant <laughs> to being kind of like stuck in the loop of like constantly doing trainings and chasing certifications and like, oh, if I just do one more thing, if I just do one more thing, if I just do one more thing, then, then I get to be happy. Then I get to be whole. Um, so yeah, this pervasive sense of, of, of not enoughness. And it, it's so funny because it, it comes up, you know, not everybody resonates with the term perfectionist and it's one that I've chosen to keep because I think it's actually really important, but I've had clients say to me, oh, I didn't, I, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not perfect enough to be a perfectionist. And I'm like that, that, that's, <laughs> that's it right there. <laughs> like I'm not even good enough to be a perfectionist. Like that, how, that's how it shows up. So in the book, I um, I describe five five different flavors, um, uh, so five different kind of archetypes of how I see perfectionism showing up. Um, so the first is the the overachiever, um, I think quite a quite a common one. Um, so like you and me, there's a there's a huge um, a, a huge importance placed on um, kind of an extrinsic motivation, like chasing the A's. Uh, chasing the kind of like the feedback, the reward from um, from other people, like um, never really being satisfied with something that I've done could always could always have been a little bit better. Um, there's the the procrastination procrastinating side of perfectionism, um, and that's when it the perfectionism shows, shows up early on in the sense of things need to be just right before I can even start. So I need to I need to know everything about this thing before I can before I can do it. So it, the procrastination really um, really kills any ability to experiment or to kind of work lightly because everything has to be has to be in order. Every I need absolutely everything at my fingertips before I can even I can even start. There's a, a people pleasing element to perfectionism. Um, so I had a, a friend once describe to me that. Um, yeah, you know, after every conversation she has with somebody, um, she comes away and she's like, "Okay, like, did I did I say everything right? Like, did I did I make any mistakes? Did I did I upset that person some way?" It's kind of like like post match analysis of every interaction with with somebody. Um, there's there's a flavor of overthinking. It's kind of like you know hyper analytical. So very rely. I think perfectionists tend to be very reliant on our intellect, on our rational minds very disconnected from our from our bodies and our, our somatic wisdom um and so that overthinking again can kind of show up um uh in this uh, yeah as you know, in time uh, in tune with procrastination it can like really stop us taking action because again we need to think everything through um this often plays me with with big things that i can i can see the big picture of something and so i'm so worried about step 57 that i can't even stay tech step two um and then the final flavor is um is control it's kind of a control freak side of perfectionism um which really speaks to me how much perfectionism is a is a nervous system strategy to keep us safe in the face of uncertainty and we live in an uncertain unpredictable world and so the control freak aspect is the part of me that wants to like lean forward and grab everything and like hold the steering wheel really tight because if i am not actively doing stuff to control the world clearly everything is going to fall apart you know the sun won't rise tomorrow um the tides won't turn you know because everything is my responsibility i'm exaggerating and there is a there is a sense of 
but actually being true. You know, maybe I don't worry about the sun rising, but that this sense of like needing to control everything in my life, um, because without that, the uncertainty feels uh, feels overwhelming. Um, is there anything else I want to say on that? I think one thing that that I was noticing as I was sharing those with you was that there is there is utility in each one of these flavors. Like perfectionism, we we develop it because it's helpful, right? So you know, for me, I'm guessing for you as well, there was a sense of this, like this achieves something for me, and this is why I love somato work. Our bodies are are so adaptable, right? They will support us to survive in almost any situation. Um, and so these survival strategies, these things that are adaptive for us as children, um, then perhaps become either maladaptive as adults, um, or the way I, I really like to kind of frame it is that I, I, I want to have more tools. Yeah, this is one way that I can show up in the world. And there are times where it's still really useful. I want more choice though. I don't want this to be the only way that I can show up and interact with um, with the world. So I think it's important to recognise that there's utility here, and so there's there's a lot to be grateful for. You know, I, I've I've achieved a lot in my life um, being a perfectionist. It gets really helped me. And actually, one of the big struggles for me was like, how do I start to let go of that? How do I trust that if I don't do it this way, that I can still get stuff done? Um, maybe we can roll at one point as well. So there's utility in it. We can be grateful for it. And it's not something that we need to overcome. Like it's not a personality flaw. It's not a character defect. And in fact, actually thinking about perfectionism in that way is perfectionist thinking in action. You're human. You're whole. You get to have these survival strategies that used to work for you that don't work so well anymore. Like that's that's okay. That's what it means to be a human being. You don't have to be these perfect Stepford Wife-esque people. We get to be messy and flawed and um, human. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Vix. Yeah, I resonate with every, with all five of those perfectionism archetypes. They come up at different times. And as you're speaking them out loud, I recognize that they kind of come at different levels of stress or how tightly identified I am with a certain thing. So like my business, all of them to some degree kind of show up or because that's something that's like, I'm really wanting to be great in my life. And I have this sense of if I don't control everything, if it's not all perfect, if I don't have all the information that clearly it's going to just all fail and kind of keeps me in this tightly bound uh, nervous system state. And I'm curious how perfectionism and the nervous system relate. But then what I also find interesting is that like areas of my life that there's just some areas where I don't need, I don't feel as like I need to control as much. Um, friendships or certain hobbies or passions. Like I can just hold them with my palms open more lightly. And I love being a beginner and I love failing forward. And I love like the, the missteps along the way because I'm not so tightly identified with them. Uh, 
So I'm curious if you could speak to that of like the things we really wear as our identity and how that might relate to our perfectionism, perfectionism strategies. Yeah. So as you were speaking, the thing that really struck me was the word failing. And it, I think it's like the relationship that we have to that and what the consequences are of that. Um, and I mean, failing is like failing is such a, a big word. And, and I think like I noticed for me, like my perfectionism kicks in more when I have built something up. And so that it does become this binary, like it's either successful or it's failed. That will always activate my, my, my perfectionism. Um, like you say, how much of it is tied to my sense of identity, my sense of self-worth, um, that has a, has a big factor in it. And so uh, similar to you, you know, business stuff for a long time has had this, you know, uh, academic achievement, um, because I think, you know, for a long time, that's how I, that's how I crafted my identity in the world. I'm the smart one, you know, I'm the whatever, whatever else, you know. A friend of mine once described me as an overachieving overachiever. You know, I was like, yes. <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> she, she was being slightly disparaging. And at the same time, like I wore that as a badge of pride. I'm like, yes. Like, you know, this is like, this is part of who I am. This is how I want to be seen in the world. And so you take that away. It's like, wow, who, who am I if I, if I don't have these, these identifiers? Um, so that, so it's both ways, but identity and then how much we build up something, how much we build up the consequences of, of failure. And it might not just be kind of like monetary, com- uh, consequences, but again, like how much is this tied back to, um, who I think I am in the world, how I'm perceived by, by other people. Um, because so much of perfectionism, I think is, is, is about the masks that we try to wear the armor that we try to wear to, to manage relationships. Um, I mean, to speak for, for me, I, I don't know if this is kind of a universally true, um, but there's something about, yeah, the, the armor of perfectionism keeps me safe because right? I'm not actually having to reveal who I am to, to people. And so if that armor gets dented or chinked by something outside of me, like, you know, that identity doesn't, doesn't hold up then that feels that feels really threatening because all of my you know for a long time all of my relationships were built on people interacting with the armor and the masks so of course it's terrifying to think what if that falls down and people see me they're not going to love me like that's the message that i've i've kind of internalized over the years and then exacerbated because of course nobody is falling in love with me they're falling in love with the the version of me that i i tried to present to the world so, so no wonder, like, no, no wonder we, we keep going back to this. No wonder our nervous systems freak out and go like this, like this feels like it's worked because it did work for a really long time. Um, and so, yeah, I, for me, perfectionism and, and stress, perfectionism, uh, and uncertainty, newness, um, all of these things that can like activate our nervous system because they're potentially threatening. Um, yeah, those are all the times that my perfectionism kicks in and I was doing a um I, I did my menstruality leadership training last year and I noticed my perfectionism kicking in really strongly at the beginning of the course and I was absolutely fascinated by it it's like oh interesting new teachers first time I've been in like a community of only women um 
really trying to figure out like how do I like how do I navigate this space? How do I how do I show up? Um, and all of my perfectionism kicking in, like the like needing to control, needing to like say the right thing at the right time, needing to get the exercises right, um, became this like beautiful hologram for because it felt new and it felt it yeah that sense of newness to my nervous system was like this is dangerous. How do I get people to like me? How do I belong here? Yeah, perfection is like the best strategy that I've, uh, well, the most practiced strategy that I've had until this point. Mm. How much of, again, I know there's like, there's your experience and then there's maybe what is more universal, but I'm, I'm curious for most of us modern adults today, how much of our perfectionism do you think is derived from the modern school system? Because it makes sense to me that if you're an adult in a new training program with teachers and peers and homework, it's, which is exactly what we did for two decades of our life, if, you know, around that, that of course those same adaptive strategies we used when we were six to make friends and get good grades are just going to kick right back in because that is what we're programmed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for raising this. Um, I, it's a huge amount, I think. Uh, you know, and this is this is my my personal understanding. Um, I don't have any kind of research to back this up, um, but I don't think it's just schooling. I think it's our whole society. Like, I think it's all of the social messages that we get in late stage capitalism. Um, and I think it's really important to remember this because um, one uh, common trait I see in perfectionists is the sort of the slightly like lone wolf kind of thing. Or at least it's it's my fault. I'm the broken one. Like everybody else has got this sorted. It's just me. I'm I need fixing. Um and and so it's very easy to kind of make this like an individual uh character flaw. Whereas actually I think those messages get pumped into us um through school, through like through I mean the self-development industry, oh, I mean it's something that I'm part of. But you see so much of the way that stuff is marketed at people. And it basically said, you've got a problem. You're a, you are a problem. Here is the solution. Just read this book. Take this course. Take this supplement. Like whatever. And then then you'll be a worthy human being. Then you'll be whole. Then your life will be good. Um, you know, late stage capitalism associates so much of our worth with our productivity and our output and our our status in the world okay um so so some of this is individual uh trauma big t little t trauma you know um and how we individually learn to kind of navigate our, our own family systems i think um but I, I do see this as a much broader social um social narrative that we are um that we're, that we're all um indoctrinated into from a, from a very young age um, through, through school and, and, and through these systems that not only kind of teach us about where our worth lies and what it means to be a successful human being um, but that also fundamentally disconnect us from ourselves so I love I love Philip Shepard's work on this and you know looks at the way that we become disembodied I mean we you know as a as a society you know, for probably thousands of years now, you know, you, 
can at least trace it back to Descartes, and I think they thought, therefore I am. But even before that, you know, even I think the you know, the, the antecedents of this go right back to kind of the agricultural revolution. Um, we are disconnected from ourselves. We are disconnected from nature, from the world around us, and that that's perpetuated. You know, in school, you're told to sit down, be quiet. You can't go to the toilet when you need to go to. You, go, you know, you have to override these like really basic impulses that we have as bodies. Every, anybody who has young children will know that trying to get a young child to sit down, <laughs> sit still, and be quiet goes against absolutely everything that they are. Um, and yet, that's like how our schooling system operates. Um, you know, even things like, you know, I, I'm, I love technology. I love what it has offered and the, um, uh, the, yeah, the gains that human society has had through technology. And I don't think we talk about what we've lost along the way. You know, even something as simple as the electric light bulb and our ability to turn night into day, you know, the way that we are disconnected from our uh, the rhythms inside of us and the rhythms around us. So I, I see perfectionism. Uh, there's a there's a, uh, a huge correlation for me between perfectionism and disembodiment. Yeah, because the more the more connected that I am to myself, the more that I am aware of my body and, um, and feeling as a body. Like the harder it is to the harder it is to brutalize myself. Like I can't just grip my teeth and bulldoze over my body's needs when I'm in relationship with it. It hurts. Um, and I got really good at numbing that out for a really, really long time. Um, yes, I'm going to pause there. Mm-hmm. Now you, you, you opened up many beautiful threads. I, I've often, in recent history, as I've been going through my own healing journey, and trying to understand my patterns as an adult, I, I phrased it scholastic trauma and this, you know, lowercase t trauma. But what did repeated exposure from kindergarten all the way through college, repeated exposure to the grading system and to competitiveness amongst peers, and very little like actually collaborating together. I remember group projects being the worst for me because I knew that I could do it the best. So I just wanted to work on my own, totally that lone, that lone wolf syndrome and vying for grades as a pathway to receiving love or to hoping I was going to get love, recognition, acknowledgement, admiration, whatever these qualities were that I would get very temporarily from my teachers, from my parents, you know, maybe from other peers who liked what I was doing or said nice things, but this fleeting temporary satisfaction that I've had to look very deeply at as an entrepreneur, because I realized that being a phenomenal student set me up for a very difficult entrepreneurial path because I wouldn't mm. let myself fail. I wouldn't experiment. I, I, you know, needed to know the answers right away. I needed, um, instructions you know, to me, that's all homework is. There's instructions and then you just do the instructions well. Well, that doesn't happen out in the world of self-created business. And I, I, this journey and one of the reasons I ended up working with you was to get a project off the ground in a more emergent way, less like here's the formula, do it well. More like what does it actually 
mean to check in with myself day in, day out to know what needs to happen next and what can I create now? And, um, you know, just to kind of bring it to what you said there at the end, I, there's a whole societal thread that I t- I know we could totally go down, but I want to keep this relevant to the individual listener who might identify with these qualities as well. Um, but coming back into the body, coming back into a felt sense of I, I'm here in this in this body right now and I cannot bulldoze over you anymore. And I don't identify my path in school as necessarily being bulldozing through my limits because it all felt authentic at the time. It's hard to know in hindsight, but it also doesn't surprise me that very soon after college, I went through massive adrenal fatigue and depression and burnout. And maybe it caught up with me once I stopped the game Mm -hmm. and tried to live out in the chaotic, uncertain world with the same instruction manual that I was given in school. And so I'm angry at the school systems for not actually preparing us as adults to navigate emotions, our bodies, uncertainty, relationships. Um, This isn't really leading into a question. This is like a rant that I know that I can get off on because it doesn't seem like enough people are talking about it. And even in the like self-made entrepreneurial world that's out there in this, that are all selling these self-help and personal development courses and books and everything too, is just continuously giving us more of the same type of frameworks that keep us stuck in those old, like if I, if I just start with step A, then I will eventually get to step Z and if I'm a good girl along the whole way and I do it right, then it's going to work. But like, it, it just doesn't work that way. No, no, it doesn't. And it, and it, you know, it strikes me that a lot of, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm going to like take issue with the phrase self-made. I, I don't actually know very many entrepreneurs who are genuinely self-made who have not had, you know, or at least have not, do not have um, uh, social privilege in in the world in some way and that's mm-hmm. their gender their race um their you know inherited wealth um, you know all of all of all of those kind of things that's a, that's a whole other political rant that i can go down um <laughs> where do i want to take what you were saying it's 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 chasing the a like that's what really strikes me from mm-hmm. what you've just been speaking to and whether it's um, for me it didn't my burnout didn't appear in my entrepreneurial work it it appeared you know, after I left the Air Force and I was in a new situation um, and the strategies that had actually like worked quite well for me while I was in the Air Force um, stopped working um, and led me to burnout. So my entrepreneurial journey kind of came post that. But there is this thing about chasing the A and so many of the messages that I think we get as entrepreneurs about what it means to be successful is still based on these like, inherently intrinsic motivators you know, like it, what it means to be successful is to make a lot of money, you know, to have mm. a lot of people in your course or, uh, you know, a lot of listeners for your podcast, like these, these kind of like metrics, external metrics. And, and I'm not denying that like those things are, are not important, like to running a business, you know, like a business, you know, like it needs to make money. I get that. Um, otherwise it's, it just becomes a very expensive hobby. Um, but the, but really questioning like, well, 
how much, like, how much do I actually need to live the life that, not that I'm told that I should have, you know, with like the, like all of the shiny things, but like, how much do I need to actually live the life that, that feels, feels good to me? And again, like, I want to acknowledge like my privilege in here. Like, I know there are lots of people for whom, um, like just making enough money to, to get by is, um, is, is almost impossible, particularly in the current climate and, and rising costs of living. Um, but it seems to me like this is one of the, one of the issues that we're facing, right? This kind of like polarization where, you know, the last, over the last three years, you know, the, the, the top 1% of earners in the world have got exponentially richer at a time where, um, uh, I don't have to say, but so many, uh, you know, people at the other end of the spectrum are facing these like, huge cost of living uh, crises. Um, yeah, standards of living are going down. Um, so we really are polarized, and yet we are. We keep being told that the answer is to is to make more money. And I, I just, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that is the thing that actually feel feels fulfilling, and that actually meets our our core needs as individuals and so we keep we stay on the hamster wheel keep chasing something because we're told that's what we should be chasing chasing the a chasing like the hundred thousand dollars or like whatever it happens to be um and it feels even if you get it it feels so empty because it's not actually meeting you where you need to be met it's not actually um yeah meeting your meeting your needs um and and for me you know the moving back to the sort of somatic wisdom the the more i have become in tune with my body the the, the deeper that process continues to go the the harder it is to ignore that like the harder it is just to, to keep focusing on like oh this is what i'm meant to be doing because because like, yeah the relationship that i have with myself is 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 different like i'm i am speaking up for what i need and want and that's you know, that's not a lot of money or, um, I don't mean money, you know, there's still the part of me that, that wants that, that wants that kind of like external success and, um, would appreciate more income and greater, you know, some greater ease that that would bring. And at the same time, yeah, I, I know that that doesn't, that that's not going to make me feel fulfilled inherently anymore. Well, it kind of speaks to what you said earlier around, more choice. You know, you're putting more options on the menu. So by addressing perfectionism and getting more clear on your core values and the ways that you truly do achieve fulfillment in life, you can choose like, okay, now I'm going for money and next I'm going to go for deeper relationships or improving my health. And instead of being on the autopilot of the or, or just being fully satisfied with exactly what is happening in this, in this moment, exactly where you are and not even like needing to aim for anything in particular, but letting that yeah. be a choice in your system. Yes. Yes. And what I would say, like, it's not about, you know, it's not about not having goals and aspirations. I remember, um, I think a conversation that you and I had um, at one point and you said that you, you were scared to bring some of your big dreams in case I told you that you didn't, you didn't need to achieve them because you're enough as you are, which is true. Um, <laughs> but for me, like, it is about having big dreams. Like, you know, the people that I work with are 
incredible people, myself included, you know, and they do, they want to do amazing things in the world. And this is what it takes. Like we have got so many challenges as a human race. It takes incredible people doing incredible things. So I want you to go and like pursue your dreams. But for me, your dreams that are deeply connected to you, connected to other people and connected to the planet, those are the dreams that start to move the needle on on the social challenges that we that we face. So I want that for you. What I want is that for you to have the choice of how you're doing that along the way. So rather than it being about like, okay, I'm going for the money first and and, and then, so I, I, I get the A and then I get to do the thing that I want. I'm like, mm-hmm. how, do you, how, how do you do more how? Right, so, you know, for example, um, um, you know, connection is really important for me in, in what I do. So rather than seeing that as separate, it's like, well, how do I feel more connected in what I do? How am I um, approaching everything that I do that brings a little bit more connection? It could be joy, play, ease, stability. I'm thinking all the different words. I've had like, clients say they talk about their core needs. But like, how are you doing that? Like, how does that become like an adverb in your to-do list? So, so you're spending actually like the focus because essentially what you've done here is you've really articulated what your why is. Like, why am I doing things in the world? What is it that I'm actually pursuing? Um, even when I am pursuing, um, you know, more money or, or whatever kind of like an extrinsic goal is, like this is why I'm pursuing it. Then that why becomes this how, like, how you're embodied as you're going about things. Because that's that's what it means to to achieve them, I think. Like we've been told that, you know, make a lot of money, be successful, then, then you get to be happy and easeful and joy and, and all the rest of it. And I actually want to offer that it's kind of like the other way around. Like that you get to you get to embody those states along the way. Not all of the time, because we're human and we are not designed to be happy all the time. We have a full range of emotions for a reason. And I can I can be asking myself, like, what would it be like to approach this task with 1% more ease or 1% more playfulness? So I can make these micro shifts in how I'm doing. So I get to experience these things that I want in the process. So by starting with the why and then the how, the what, I am, the what is still important, right? Like, you know, in any business, in any kind of walk of life, like you start to do the things. But but the what the what somehow feels there's there's less pressure on it um, because I understand how the what links to my why and I'm living the how um, or I'm attempting to live more of the how. So that for me is really where the choice. All of this is about making uh, making all of this. It's all implicit, but making it explicit, but bring it up onto the table, bring it into our conscious awareness. Because when it's there, when it's like right in front of you, that's when you can do something about it. And it's all like tucked away in your in your unconscious. You're not really looking at this. You're not really orienting towards your reality. So I'm kind of bringing in like a lot of authentic relating uh, principles into this now. Um, then, then yeah, you, you we we continue to kind of like work on autopilot and these these old uh, habitual ways of being. I love that framework and it's been very helpful in our work together. And I'd love to start now opening the box of 
what are the ways that we can really address perfectionism? What are the ways that we can create more choice in our systems? And some of the, I want to say modalities, but also just like perspectives and frameworks that you've brought to the table are cyclical living, embodiment, the nervous system, and authentic relating. And there, you know, there's nuances within all of those, and there might be a couple more. So can you start to just, yeah, take us down the journey of someone identifies with those five flavors of perfectionism, and they still have their big lofty goals. So earlier you said, and I can still get things done. So let's circle back Mm -hmm. to that. Now, how do we actually get to have our cake and eat it too, whilst shedding those masks? (laughs) those masks and like de-armoring ourselves along the way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, like we don't have to shed the masks. Something I say at the beginning of my workshops, especially I teach authentic relating. It's like, you get to choose, like, you want to show up with the mask today? You do that. If that's what feels authentic, great. Okay. I I don't Mm. believe that like authenticity is this kind of performed vulnerability that is is starting to kind of i'm seeing a lot of them on social media now me authenticity is like a coherence between my my internal world and my external expression and so sometimes that looks that looks like saying i don't want to talk about this right now or it looks like wearing a mask because like yeah that's 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 how i feel like that's that's what i want to do right now and that's a that's a choice Oh, oh, I have something timely that I want to interject here. <laughs> I'm like brimming. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. I'm, I, um, I've recently joined a, and I'm like co-creating a women's group here in Boulder. And we had our first meeting last week. And one of the women, um, you know, this is, this is no like negative feedback on anybody there, including myself, but one of the women called me out on being too polite. And then the rest of them kind of went into this, like, yeah, we got to ditch the good girl and we got to ditch the people pleaser and fuck being polite and we got to be authentic. And in the moment, I actually got really quiet and sort of shut down and just like went along with it because I wasn't sure what my real perspective was on the situation. And then when it was all said and done um, and I was home Actually, on my drive home, I was speaking out loud to myself, which I do quite often as a way to process. And I was like, I love my polite side. And my polite side really serves me from time to time. And then the next morning, I was at the dog park with my puppy and an older lady walked up with her dog. And I just noticed in my conversation with her, I was so polite. And, you know, and I come with over a decade of hospitality training and customer service skill sets and it's just in my blood to be kind and polite to people. And I ended up having this moment, you know, what you even said in the women's group, like we got to take the masks off and be here and be fully transparent and vulnerable. And I, the next day when I was sort of with that woman in the dog park, it was almost like I allowed myself to take the polite mask and put it back into my bag of tricks and my bag of options. Like I'm not here to disown polite Kelly. Polite Kelly really serves in this world in many ways. And sure, there's other times where raw, wild, outlandish, expressive Kelly is the right thing. But that's not the right thing to do to the kind old lady at the dog park. I'm enjoying being authentically polite. And so that just feels like a, an example of 
we are allowed to have the masks and we put them on depending on the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Another way to put it at the end, it's authentically polite. And and this is this is what gets me that there is, there is now this sort of perception that authentic to be authentic looks a certain way, and it means like being completely transparent and completely raw and you know and like that. That's that's not how I I experience authenticity in myself and and in other people. It often genuine authenticity looks looks different every single time because. I'm different every single time. Um, so for me, it's, it's it's what is what is in integrity in this moment. And one of the things I love about authentic relating is that it's it's not just about what is authentic for me. It is also about like what is how do I honor myself and how do, do I honor the other person? How do I care for the relationship? And so like that might mean that I don't. I don't express everything. I don't speak all of my truth in that moment because that's not actually, that's not how I honor myself and honor the other person. You know, if the person I'm speaking to isn't resourced, you know, if my, my partner's just come home after a, a long, stressful day and is, is maxed out, like I am not going to get the response that I want from him if I suddenly like bring up this like really sensitive thing in our relationship. And now he feels bad about it. I feel bad about it. Um, but no, it's fine because I was authentic. Bullshit. Bullshit. Actually, like the thing that is authentic in that moment is to say, okay, actually, yeah, maybe there is, you know, there is something that's going on for me. I would like to be able to talk to you about it at some point, And I can see that this is not the right time. Can we find time for it? Oh, yeah. So... <laughs> I felt angry. Not felt not angry on your behalf. Purging. Oh no, it's okay. It's aliveness. Yeah, it's it's not vomiting or purging everything that's inside of us to anyone who will listen. And that's what I've lo- I've loved about authentic relating is it's authenticity in relationality. Does it actually serve this connection? And when I just to kind of close my story, like I had just met that woman, you know, moments prior. So of course, I'm going to smile. I'm going to say, it's nice to meet you. I'm going to kind of do the pleasantries. I'm not going to smack her on the ass and say, what up, sister? Like, I just met you. Maybe someone else will do that because that is their authentic, you know, greeting when they meet someone new. But that's not, that's not me. And I don't want to lose yeah. that aspect of me. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the thing that gets me angry about the story that you've just told is like the, the first practice of authentic relating is to welcome everything. And mm-hmm. the way that you've just described that experience for you is it sounds like like your expression, how you chose to express in the moment was not fully welcomed. And if anything, was like shamed kind of publicly to be like, oh, that's not like, that's not OK. Like that is the, that's not the right way to do it. And there we go. Like we circle back to perfectionism. There is a right way to do things. And like it's I mean, there are certain situations in life where it's true. Like, you know, if you're coding something, there is a right way to do it. Um, but in terms of who we are and how we express, there is never a single right way to do it. It always depends and and this is the, this, the thing for me about developing more range and therefore having more choice is that I can be sensitive to myself. Like where, what is true for me right now? Where am I in my cycles? What is required of me 
right now in the relationship that I'm in or the task that I'm performing? And how do I marry these those two up? So how am I, yeah, how am I choosing to be that is is most appropriate for the situation that that, that I'm in? There is never a right way. And I'm off, off, I'll stop ranting. (laughs) 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 Okay. I feel, I feel good. Um, All right. So let's, yeah, just kind of take it back to that initial um, door that we walked down of the ways in which we address perfectionism by bringing in these different concepts, embodiment, the nervous system, authentic relating, cyclical living. Like you've spent so much time unpacking quote unquote perfectionism and all of its flavors. And, and how, how have you arrived at these tools being what we need? Yeah. So this is, this is like, this is my bias at play. So these are the things that have worked for me over the last few years. And, um, therefore the things that I have dived deep into my own journey and then my professional training and then things that I offer to the world. This is not a prescriptive solution. Um, they work for me. I see them work for other people. And they're the things that light me up in terms of what I choose to, I choose to teach. So I'll say that to start with. There may be other things for other people that, that work. Um, so authentic relating for me was the gateway into all of this. I stumbled across it quite accidentally. Um, yeah, I was at a festival and I was talking to somebody about not being able to cultivate the kind of friendships and relationships that I wanted. And the person that I was speaking to said, oh, a friend of mine is teaching this workshop next weekend. I think you'd like it. So that, that was me, hooked uh, nearly five years ago now. Um, so authentic relating for me, as we've just sort of spoken to, gave me permission to gave me permission to express myself. Yeah. So and to be received. I think it was some of my first experiences of being able to express my emotions um, and the full range of them, and um, and to be heard and received in that to have somebody actually like lean in and say, "Tell me more," rather than the story. The story that I had been telling myself was that if I if I expressed all of this to people, that that would have them move away from me. Hmm. Um, so so yeah, so authentic relating has been a, a big part of this um, because I think there is whether you identify as a people pleaser or not, I think there's a huge element of um, relationship management in perfectionism or like perception management. Like how do I curate myself so that you like me? So authentic relating has given me a lot of permission to be able to express myself and, and tools to be able to do that in a way that is I'm taking responsibility for myself and um, caring for the other person. You know, there's a lot of skill in being able to do that. Um, and I, I was actually I was teaching on, on Monday and um, I found myself saying like the first person you authentically relate with is yourself. Um, so, you know, being able to like, I, yeah, I tend to use the five practices actually as a way to kind of manage myself when I'm, when I'm triggered to be able to orient towards my reality, to notice the sensations in my body, for example, to, to notice and name the, the assumptions and the stories and the beliefs that I have about what's, what's going on as separate from how I feel. Um, to be able to start to kind of reveal some of that, to take ownership for my part in, in that, because, you know, if I'm being triggered, it's actually very, very little to do 
with what the other person has done and more about like how it's then interacting with me and my stuff. So recognizing that and then being able to honor myself and my needs in connection with somebody else and their needs. So yeah, I found authentic relating a, a really, yeah, for me, changed my relationship with myself first. And then it's helped me build um, more nourishing relationships out in the world so that I'm not so reliant on this kind of lone wolf thing. It's like, oh, actually, other people are okay. <laughs> I can trust other people. So, yeah, like this, 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 this can feel safe. Um, so authentic relating then took me more into the world. Authentic relating is an embodied practice at its core. And it took me deeper into the world of embodiment and body facilitation and the nervous system. Um, so as you've spoken about, I, I see a, a, um, perfectionism as an expression of our nervous system doing its thing. Um, whether that is either in the kind of the um, sympathetic activation and the push, push, do, do, like, yeah, um, kind of almost like fight or flight, but like, I have to do all the things, I'm right, you're wrong, I have to do this all on my own. All of that, I think, is a sympathetic activation. No, I just, I've noticed just how I've moved in my body as I'm seeing myself on the on the screen and experiencing myself as I'm talking about this, like really just being in that for a moment. And then, and then, it, but it also comes through in the other way, you know, the the kind of um, the parasympathetic dorsal uh, expression of our nervous system, the kind of the inauthentic relating we call collapse, the um, the I'm hopeless, I give up, I can't do anything right, you're right, I'm obviously wrong. Yeah, that is also a big part of the uh, the perfectionist experience tend to like oscillate between those two and so yeah there's a big piece in this in me about again awareness <laughs> can i notice that i'm when i'm in these states and particularly like the subtleties of these states yeah it's easy to notice when you're in full-blown trigger like, how do you notice like the very first signs that you're tipping out of mm-hmm. ventral vagal safety and into into something else and then having the tools to be able to regulate, to, to bring myself back to centre, back to equanimity, back to the place where I'm open to connection with myself and with other people. And that's been a, a huge part of, of that because when I'm centred, that's when I can access my choice again. You know, I'm out of the reaction and I get back to this place where I can, I, I'm responsible. I can choose my response. And maybe that's to continue down the perfectionist path, but with intention. Um, so that's where the nervous system kind of plays into it for me. Um, um, and, you know, all of this is based on like embodied self-awareness uh, and the, being able to, like, it's I, I'm increasingly roll my eyes every time I hear somebody talk about mindset stuff and changing your limiting beliefs. I just, for me, it doesn't work. Um, the thing that I have found um, more... Uh, my, my embodiment teacher describes it as uh, quicker, stickier, and deeper. Right? Is to is to use the body because our bodies are these gross layers of our being. You know, I can see it, I can touch it, I can move it in a way that I can't do that with my emotions. I can't, I definitely can't do that with my thoughts. You know, if I'm wanting to change my thoughts, by the time I've noticed that I've thought it, I've already thought it. <laughs> and it's about kind of like repairing it afterwards, like trying to think something else after already thinking the thoughts. Whereas I can, I can notice my body. I can notice the way that, you know, when I'm in sympathetic, sympathetic activation, I lean forward and I grit my teeth and I, you know, I focus my eyes. I can notice that and I can choose to do something different. Um, so, yeah, the embodied piece of awareness and, and choice comes into it hugely. 
and then there's and then there's cycles. But maybe I can pause it. I've just thrown like a lot at you, so maybe I can pause there and see what's kind of like digesting what feels alive for you and what I've just shared, Kelly, and then I can come back to talk about the cycles. But it's okay. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really I'm really tracking the threads of the body embodiment and um, being in relationality with others. And so I don't think you've explicitly said this, but it, it sounds like one of the pathways to, I want to say healing perfectionism, but maybe even the word healing isn't quite right, is to get back into connection with other people. And that like perfectionism and its flavors inherently separate us. You know, I'm over here doing things this way and I am judging myself in relationality to you, or there's, there's gotta be a contrast, you know, there's a students and then there's C students. And we only know that we're an A student because other people didn't get A's and there's a, a grading system. So there's like this linear way that we are trying to place ourselves against others and authentic relating kind of shatters that paradigm by bringing us all back into our humanity and that connection of authenticity. But to, to do that well, you know, we have to be actually in our bodies. And I know a lot of AR practices um, have you speak to like just what is arising and just noticing it and just speaking it out loud and letting that be enough, not needing to justify. And actually in one of your recent blog posts, there's a quote that struck me and it was, your experience doesn't require an explanation. And how a lot of times in authentic relating, we're just revealing our experience, not to judge it, not to unpack it, not to like do anything with it, but just like, this is what I'm experiencing. And so, yeah, I think what you've just shared, and I know cyclical living will go deeper into this is like, it really starts coming back in a big way to the body. Yeah. Yeah, as you were just reflecting that back, what really struck me is the the loneliness of perfectionism. I think Brene Brown talks about this, you know, perfectionism is a this 20 ton shield that we carry around to keep us safe. And all it does is separate us from, from other people. It's this kind of perverse strategy that we use to get love and affection and and be wanted by people. And yet, because we've built this big wall between us and other people, we never get to feel it. <laughs> We're inherently social creatures. We did not evolve over hundreds of thousands of years to live in single family households. You know, the reason that so many of us are, are really struggling is because we are trying to individually do the work that would have been an entire family or an entire village. We all need other people around us and perfectionism keeps us separate in so, in so many ways. And, and yeah, and so, so cycles is the, is the other part of it. So for me, all of this, all of these tools are pointing to a return to wholeness, a remembering of wholeness. That's the antidote to perfectionism. And it's not that perfectionism needs healing. This is an alternative. This is a different strategy for navigating the world. And it's coming from this place of, of wholeness. And the thing I love about cycles is it gives me you know, you're talking only about the instruction manual. It's the instruction manual. <laughs> it's like the framework. <laughs> 
and it's not prescriptive. You know, cycles work doesn't say like you have to be like this in in different moments. But it's a, it's for me the way I I use cycles, whether it's the menstrual cycle, circadian rhythm, a project cycle, the seasons, is these archetypes. And how am I in relationship with this archetype right now? What wisdom is available to me in this season of of what I'm doing? Um, how do I um, how do I use that wisdom? How am I aligning myself more? How am I working with my body and with the, the natural flow of energy in this moment? Working with it, going, going with it, going with that flow rather than resisting it and trying to be somewhere that I'm not. And so cyclical living for me has been a just this huge permission slip. Like it's a permission slip to, to be in my full summer expression and to be big and to do all of the things and, and be high energy and achieving because that's part of it. And at the same time, it gives me permission and it gives me a framework of when to rest. You know, with my menstrual cycle, for example, I, I try as best as I can. Um, saying to you earlier that my um, my bleed arrived a week early so I've, I've just coming to the end of it so my 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 carefully laid plans for my month of when I was going to rest kind of got thrown up in the air by my body but still like being with that and being like okay so this is what's happening now this is the energy that my body is in how do I work with it how can I bring one percent more of that into what I'm doing and so you know and again I'm fortunate you know I work for myself I have a lot more control over my time this week, I mean, last week, I was like back to back facilitating for five days. Um, but even then, it would be like, okay, well, how do I bring a little bit? More, how do I bring a little bit more rest and ease, a little bit more stillness into what I'm doing? Um, so yeah, so this this is what I like. It's a permission slip. This this framework by which I can understand where I am, and and by understanding that, it's like I can give my I can accept it more. I can give myself more permission. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm I'm day twenty five. Like, no wonder I'm tired and I'm finding it hard to focus because my body is starting to slow down. I'm in the autumn phase, or it's 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 five p.m. You know, or two p.m. for me is actually I, I tend to have like the mid afternoon slump. I'm definitely a two shifts of the day kind of person. Like, okay, it's two p.m. Like, no wonder I'm finding it hard to focus right now. So, what could I be doing? How could I be doing it that is supportive of where I'm at? Or in a in a creative cycle. Okay, I'm 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 just getting going with something and full of ideas and like, oh no, here comes the inner critic. Like, right, so my job right now is to protect, protect my little seedling ideas from the nasty frost of my inner critic. Like, how am I in relationship with that? So yeah, I, I for me cyclical living has just been this. It is the instruction manual, it is the framework. By, by which I kind of navigate navigate the timing of, of things and one that gives me permission to be again to be, be the full expression of myself yeah, to be wholly me because I am different at different points of different cycles compared to the evening day one day 14 like spring or summer like, and that's yeah seasons are interesting for one for me here in Bali after two years I'm still as I miss in this the the Celtic wheel of life, and it's that kind of like archetypal mm. seasonal pattern. I don't feel it in the world around me in the same way. I miss that support, but anyway, um, yeah. What's your experience? Because I know that this is, this was 
they can all work together. This was like the thing that, well, my understanding from my English head, this was a thing that like changed, was a bit of a game changer for you. So I, I'm curious yeah. what, what cyclical living and what, what you've uncovered, what this is meaning to you at the moment. Yeah, thanks, Fix. You articulated it very beautifully. Um, and I do want to circle back to and kind of like weave all of these together because I there really are these threads of why these modalities braid seamlessly together, it seems, or they're really uh, co-supportive. But for me, you know, I'm the straight A student looking for a roadmap. Like I, I was looking for a way to orient myself and my creativity really was the big part of, I kept getting myself into these patterns of big ideation, big envisioning, and then subsequently burning out and burning the ideas down. You know, this podcast, you're going to be episode eight or nine. Like that's a massive milestone for me from having gone from like the last 10 years when podcasts first became a thing, I wanted a podcast. And I just for a very long time say, stayed in the perpetual ideation stage, never actually had the gumption or the confidence to move it forward even a little bit. And then as the years went on, I started getting a little bit more courage and capacity and skill sets to move it forward. But I would come blazing out of the gate, you know, it'd be like a horse that is just right behind the gate in a horse race and just running from it, running out. So when you taught me about pacing and going from like, the tender seeds and the new beginnings of spring, like you pace yourself before you get into full expression. And I wanted full expression right away. I want the whole thing. I want it to be done now and I'm going to do it today. And so I would, I would burn out. My body would burn out. And then my love or passion or interest in the idea itself would go with it. You know, and I would usually blame the idea or I would find a way to blame me and I'm broken or the idea is broken. And, you know, eventually got to this place of just looking at a graveyard of half-baked project ideas and the the grief of that. And they're all, they're all great. I look back and I'm like, they're, they all had legs to stand on. It was my relationship and grasping onto them and then my um, kind of frenetic pacing my overzealous action oriented phase that wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't give the ideas their natural cycles. You know, it's like, I would suffocate the idea right away. I didn't let it breathe. I didn't let it show me what it wanted to be. I didn't, I didn't play in the experimentation phase. And so I would take it initial idea and then try to be right in summer, pretty much skip all of the beauty of spring. And then, you know, the other cycles I would then like fast forward to winter when I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> and you bringing me into awareness of cyclical living and how ideas and creativity also happen on cycles. I was able to map my relationship to my creative ideas as well as my nervous system states in the approach of those ideas. And then I started, you know, just cycles within cycles within cycles, you start peeling back and I'm like, Oh, and when am I working on it throughout my menstrual cycle? And, Oh, I'm also trying to build a, a business while I'm in the midst of an international transition 
with massive big personal shifts and realizing like incompatible cycle phases. You know, even this podcast is kind of a funny example where I technically launched it in October and I had a ton of energy because that's it's mid-autumn still, you know, you're still kind of vibing off the end of summer a little bit. But then by the holidays, I was toast. And I recognized like that was not a great time for me personally to launch a podcast, which is why I kind of disappeared for most of January and February because I needed to rest. But at that time, you know, I was, I had compassion for myself. I had compassion for the process. I understood what was going on. I didn't judge the project and I didn't judge myself. I just recognized that there were different cycles happening at different times and I could honor that. And so for me, yeah, this framework gave me the blueprint that I I had needed and wanted all along. And I recently wrote in my newsletter, like I now actually believe that I can create anything as long as I'm staying aware of the various cycles that are needed to birth it and not trying to rush through any of it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, that's such a beautiful example of, of, of this. And, um, like the, the importance of, you spoke to like pacing in the spring and giving ourselves time to have that. Um, the, the allowing in summer, self-care practice, is, is this place of allowing. Um, so just to credit, like a lot of um, my understanding of this, particularly the menstrual cycle comes from uh, grad school. So Alexandra and Shani, who I trained with, uh, just to give them credit for their, <laughs> their ideas. Um, and at the same time, like from one of the things I love about cycles work is that um, I mean, cycles are everywhere. You can, you can observe the cycles in your, like the way that you eat your food, like does like, the rhythm of a meal have a spring, a, a summer, a, an autumn and a winter? Um, and this comes from um, with Mark Walsh. Um, so cycles are all around us. So this kind of like allowing in the summer, come back to this, um, holding the tension in the autumn, because especially with a creative project, there can be this desire to burn it to the ground. Like it kind of like it's lost its juice. And that's often an indication, not that the idea is flawed, but like it, it, it needs a winter. It needs some time to kind of like, yeah, mm. percolate and repotentize so that it can be ready to ready to go again. And then you spoke to about the fractal nature. There are cycles within cycles. Um, and that sometimes I, I can experience that. And I know clients do get this a little overwhelming of like, how do I track? <laughs> how do I track all of this? Um, and my, my suggestion is always to, to start with one, start with the cycle that feels most resonant for you. And I often say to people to start with the small ones, you know, start with your day. Um, or like perhaps the rhythm of your week. Because when you start with these small ones, you can, um, you experience the cycles more frequently. So you, the awareness builds more quickly and you can see, uh, you can make small changes uh, and see the impact more, more quickly. And then, and then over time, you can start to kind of layer in these, these other cycles um, that feel, that feel relevant for you. For me, the menstrual cycle is a big part of that. Um, not everybody menstruates, um, so you're welcome to use the, the cycle of the moon, or um, you know even just like the calendar month can be a nice one. When the seasons, or you know, say like for me here in Bali, I've, I've lost access to. I'm t- technically in the southern hemisphere, which is also confusing because I'm like 
180 degrees out of what my body is and my my mind is used to. Um, but I still tend to think about it in terms of quarters. Um, so finding finding the rhythms that, that work for you and noticing. And again, um, all of these cyclical liberal practices are they're practices of awareness. They're not practices of performance. If you mm. again, there is like no right way to do this. You know, there's there's nothing inherently wrong with launching a podcast in October or December. I mean, I mean, I wish we could switch New Year from first of January to um, uh, to the twentieth of March with the equinox, like when when like spring starts. Um, but fine, mm-hmm. like we agree, the calendar we have the calendar that we have and the the social norms that go along with that. Um, so this press of awareness and. Uh, again, it just needs to be performed. Like what are what are the one percent shifts? How could I be a little bit more in alignment with this? How could I be noticing a little bit more what I need, what my body needs, what this project needs, and could I move a little bit more, a little bit closer towards that? Given given the other factors in in life that are happening right now, you know, I know lots of. Like, young mums mums of young children i should say um who you know would love to take like three days off when they bleed and that's just like it's impossible right i get it it's not about like yeah being able to do this 100 percent. it's like it's about the the one percent shifts and how how are you how are you being with yourself this is the thing that governs all of these practices for me how are you being with yourself um and 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 learning that like daring to trust yourself, daring to trust the rightness of your experience, that you are not wrong. <laughs> the thing that you are experiencing is what you are experiencing. It's information. And then how are you responding to that? Um, and these practices for me have allowed me to start to respond to myself with more compassion, more curiosity, more alignment, as opposed to heaping on blame, shame, judgment, self-brutalization. Um, I tried that for a really long time and I discovered it doesn't feel very good. Um, and once I have started to go to like, take that off, but I'm not wasting all of my energy on like, you know, self-flagellation. It's like, oh, funnily enough, I have more energy for the things that I, wanted, I want to do in the world. So, um, you know, my big fear about these practices and slowing down and like, am I ever going to want to do anything again? It turns out, yes, there's lots of things that I want to do. I do them differently. Um, am I, my quote unquote, as successful? I don't know. Like, I can't prove the counter narrative. I don't know what I'd be doing and how well I'd be doing if um, if I'd continued to 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 like yeah beat myself up to get anything done. But this feels nice. That's <laughs> that's the best arbiter I ever. Like, I kind of like it. It feels yeah. Um, yeah, it, it feels nice. That's, that's the best description I've got from it. Um, I love that. It doesn't oh, need to be compli- more tears complicated in my eyes than as that. I say that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I think it, I think it's the part of me that's like, it's, it's allowed to feel nice. Like it, I am allowed to enjoy it. I'm allowed to, to be kind to myself. Like that is, like, and it still feels like a revelation every time I, I, I remember this. I'm like, oh, this is, this is okay. This is, 
it, it doesn't have to hurt. It reminds me of what you said a little bit ago of we get to have those experiences now that we're, that we're chasing or that we're craving the joy, the satisfaction, the ease, the pleasure, the things that we think are going to come on the other side of the A, the other side of the podcast launch, the other side of whatever the thing is. And it's like, no, we get to have it all along the way. And where these practices seem to weave and braid for me is helping us to get, first of all, like more into consent with reality of like, what is actually happening? How am I actually feeling? Where am I actually at in these cycles? Some things that we don't have control over. I, I don't have much control over when my, you know, my menstrual cycle or the four seasons or what the moon is doing. And so instead of fighting that. I love the way you said, I'm I don't have much living. control. I'm going to offer you I have control over that. <laughs> I could. I could have control over my menstrual cycle if I decided to go back onto hormonal birth control, but the rest of it, I got nothing. <laughs> and even yeah, yeah. that is well, and, probably and, and, yeah, pretty yeah. scandalous. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm all for <laughs> hormonal contraception. Like again, there's no right way, whatever works for people. Um, but technically um, uh, you no longer have a menstrual cycle. The, it's a, it's a, it's a bleed because there's a break in the hormones. So it, um, you might have the same kind of rhythm, but it, it's not the same kind of hormonal fluctuations. But um, but yes, yeah. I just wanted to call you out on that because it's this <laughs> is the thing with with us version. It's it's pernicious, and this is why this is why it's not something to overcome or to heal. Like I think this is going to be part of me forever, and but I'm enjoying noticing more and more subtlety and nuance of the way that it kind of like just just creeps up and that. I don't have much control over when the 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 the, the, the moon or the the, the, the season. <laughs> okay, that was yeah, a comment like... directly about the menstrual cycle, not the rest. Of it. <laughs> but, you, but you're right, and it's it's like a, a a humility of like I am a natural being. I'm I'm nature, and the the faster I get into consent with that and alignment with that the more I get to experience everything else that we just said. Yes. Yeah. It's this humility. So there's this humility of like the surrender, the encountering, like you say, like consent with reality. And then, oh, this is the bit that really gets me excited. The, the, the power of agency and creativity that comes from that, not because I have to force it and I have to make myself do it, but that arises in me naturally. It's like, it would be like trying to stop the plants from growing in spring right? You just, you, you, like, it's a lot of effort to stop that happening, right? Spring, like the world, nature reemerges and is unstoppable force in spring and summer. And if you are able to, to autumn or winter, if you're really able to encounter yourself, to be in the humility, like, yeah, these are the places where I don't have control. This is, this is the reality that I'm in right now it opens up this huge potential of agency and like, okay, well, what is it that I can do? Where is it that I do have influence and agency right now? Where is my creative expression that's coming through? Um, yeah. Well, this is perfect because we are recording this about five days before the spring equinox. And so I think many of us around the world, especially those in the Northern hemisphere, we are feeling the return of warmth of earlier sunshine for me it's the birds chirping in the morning it it is exciting i'm excited to come out of yeah, the, yeah. the cave a little bit and like have this new resurgence of life 
Ah, so thank you for articulating that so beautifully. Now, I, uh, I would love to close by giving our listeners a little taste of your book. So we actually didn't explicitly talk about it too much, but we talked a lot about what you do write about in it. And your book is called Enough, An Imperfect Antidote to Perfectionism. So really quick, can you just give listeners what can they expect by picking up this book and who are you really writing it for? Oh, I'm sure for the time. <laughs> what, did, what did you get from it? Let me flip it back to you because you, you've read mm-hmm. it. Like what, what was it that, that struck you about it? Yeah, well, like my the identity constructs I have that I think helped me align with it are being an ambitious professional who are also like coming into humility that they I'm not a robot and it is time to change my approach towards success. It's time to reorient around that word and redefine it for myself and not quite having had um, the right frameworks or perspectives to take up until now. You know, obviously still collecting information on that, but your book, you said it earlier, it's like a big permission slip to find a new way forward. And that the antidote to perfectionism is wholeness. Who who doesn't want to experience that? Um, So I really feel like what, what I love about your book is it's, it's very approachable and digestible. It's full of your story as well as very precise actionable things or perspectives that we can take. And it grounds it into like my, my head was just nodding the whole time of like, yep, that's so aligned with my experience too. Coming out of modern schooling, modern ambition, post-capitalist messaging, you know, perfectionism runs deep in, in my body and in my mind, mental constructs. So your book felt like without needing to spend you know, 600 pages reading it, I could read it in three hours and walk away with a big exhale of like, okay, I can drop some of the weight now. And this is how I do it. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that reflection. That's what I I was going, the exhale. I'm like, oh, Mm. okay. Maybe maybe I'm enough. And then the title actually came from the conversation that you and I were having um, as I was writing because um, I, I got to this point, so it's about 15,000 words. So for the average reader, that's about an hour if you read it in one go. And I was like, oh my God, is it enough? Like, do I need to do, I need to do more? Um, and I think you and I had a, a conversation over, over voice notes, Kelly, where um, you, know, you reflected that uh, how many self-help books you never finish and how many feel mm-hmm. like they're kind of padded out to, to be bigger. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe this is enough. Maybe... You know, and I write about it in the final chapter, like all the ways that perfectionism were coming up for me in relationship to writing the book, um, trying to trying to discern what enough enough is. You know, one of the conclusions that I came to is that um, enough is always a little bit less than what I think it needs to be. Mm. I, I, if I'm asking myself, is this enough? I've probably already passed the point that it was enough. Um, mm. Beautiful. We will link to all of this in the show notes and to close. um, Well, first let's start with uh, where can listeners learn more about you? And is there anything upcoming that you'd like to share with us? 
Uh, yes, so uh, I'm on Instagram. That's the best place to kind of like connect with me on social media. That's Vix underscore Anderton um, or my website, VixAnderton.com. You'll find links to the book. Uh, there's a bunch of free resources um, that you can get hold of, including like cycle trackers and, and things like that. Um, don't know whether this will have started by the time the episode comes out, but I have the next round of my, my group program, which is called Get It Done, um, where you know, a lot of the things we've talked about today, um, we get to we get to practice, and that's a huge part of the work that I do. This is not about intellectually understanding these concepts, it's about how do you practice them, how do you start to live them, really integrate them into your lives. That's an eight-week program where people get to bring something that they're actively working on and play with these these different tools in a in an embodied way so that they really live and breathe in your life through the program and then and then um and yeah so tangibly that's kind of what's what's coming up there's a couple of more contemplating courses that i'm teaching online in various time zones in bali yeah what's starting to come through for me this year like my spring ideas is is more around like how do i support people beautiful and if you could leave our listeners with one question to help them on their own rewilding journey what is a question that comes to mind oh Oh, this is where my perfectionism always kicks in with questions like this. I'm like, oh, what is the answer? Say something, say something wise. Um, <laughs> it's two questions. It's how, like, how are you doing this in your body right now? What is, what is it you're doing in your body? And then what is the 1% shift? into yeah a little bit more alignment with your internal world and your your external world beautiful thank you so much fix this was an amazing experience thank you so much for having me that was that was a lot of fun <laughs> enjoyed that mm-hmm. all right talk soon <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of wild on purpose please think about writing a review and sharing it with your friends. If you'd like to learn more about my leadership offerings or join my newsletter, visit wildonpurpose.co. Lastly, I'd like to thank my podcast editor, Jabril Al-Suhaimi, for helping me weave this audio journey together and all of those who have supported me along my path as a creator. Until next time, stay wild.